Morning, church family. Hey, I also want to add my thank you to the Waltons and the Grays for their faithful service to the Lord. They answered the Lord's call to missions and so grateful for how God has been using them over these last few decades. I would also encourage you, as Pastor Jim did, to just come back uh, at 12.30 today for that uh, for the Niger luncheon, um, not just for the food, but really to hear what God is doing uh, in Africa through his people. Uh, so two quick things. Um, first, I wanted to thank everyone for your generosity in giving to our special offering for Ukraine relief uh, these last two weeks. In addition to what you contributed, the Benevolence Fund also made a contribution. And we sent this past week, we sent $15,000 to Samaritan's Purse. So, um, yeah. Thank you for continuing to be such a generous church. And then secondly, again, we're, we're now just one month from Easter weekend. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, again, as I noted last week, it, it kicks off with a Easter worship night here on Sunday evening, the 27th uh, at 6 p.m. Uh, and then we're also starting a choir for Easter. And the first rehearsal for that is Wednesday, the 23rd at 6.30 here at the church. Uh, we yesterday posted on our church website, our, our Facebook page, a full schedule of Easter events. There's also an Easter page on our website at lc3.com slash Easter. Um, so these are, these are a few printed copies at the Welcome Center. Uh, but there's a ton of activities this season. Uh, and then we have two, two tables in the gathering area with these little square cards. So these are five packs of cards that, you can, that have our Easter service uh, schedule for Easter weekend. We would encourage you to just invite your friends, your family, and complete strangers to come uh, join us that weekend. The most important part of that weekend is obviously us teaching a message of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so uh, definitely pick these up and hand them out over these next couple of weeks. So Apple is one of the largest and most successful companies in the world. And yet that was not always the case. From 1990 to about 1996, the company actually struggled. And at one point in early 1996, Apple looked like it was headed for bankruptcy. Now, their fortunes changed when they brought back as CEO Steve Jobs in 1997. And in addition to completely revamping their product line, Steve uh, invested his time, and one of the first things he did was to help design one of the most critically acclaimed and most successful ad campaigns of all time. Now, the campaign launched with a famous commercial showing black and white images of some of the most iconic people of the 20th century. From Albert Einstein, to Martin Luther King Jr., to Amelia Earhart, to Mahatma Gandhi, to Pablo Picasso, to Jim Henson. These were people who stood out for what they said and what they did. And as these black and white images played on screen, Steve Jobs himself narrated the following script. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of the rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is to ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones that do. And the commercial ends with their famous slogan, Think Different. This weekend, we continue our sermon series, Servant Heart, Kingdom Mind, a verse-by-verse -verse teaching through the Gospel of Mark. 
And today we're going to study together Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Now, throughout this study, we've noted that the kingdom of God is radically different from the world. It's an upside-down kingdom. Nearly every perspective of the kingdom is completely opposite to what the culture believes. And so a central part of discipleship and growing in our faith is studying God's word in order to see all of the ways that you and I are called to think differently from the world. And today we're going to see four ways in which kingdom-minded thinking is radically different. Now we're going to study our passage today in three sections. And in this first section, Jesus for the third time tells his disciples about his soon-to-be death. The Bible says this, And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. This is the word of the Lord. So it's unclear how much time has passed between the scene with the rich ruler that we studied last week and the scene that we're studying today. But it's likely been a few weeks or even a few months. Now verse 32 tells us that Jesus and his disciples were headed to Jerusalem for the last time. And that tells us we're in the final six or seven weeks of Jesus' time on earth. And as they headed to Jerusalem, Jesus told his disciples again for the third time what was going to happen to him. Now you might be wondering why Jesus again brought up his death and resurrection. Well, for one, despite the number of times he's brought it up so far, it's unclear they understood what was going to happen to him. So it was worth repeating. And then secondly, his death and re resurrection were going to be transformative, right? world-changing. And so they were going to have an incredibly important and significant impact on his followers. So, of course, Jesus would want to spend as much time as possible talking about these significant events. And so they're walking to Jerusalem. And the second half of verse 32 tells us how the disciples were feeling. Verse 32 says, And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Amazed and afraid. Last week I mentioned there's a lot of different Greek words for amazed, but the two most common are the words existemi and thombeo. Now, existemi means astonished with wonder, but thombeo means astonishment and fear. The word that's actually being used here in verse 32 is that second one, is thombeo. Meaning, again, what the disciples are feeling as they're heading to Jerusalem is fear. So what are they afraid of? I think the Gospel of John gives us the answer. And when you look at the Gospel of John, we find that there's one event that triggered the disciples heading to Jerusalem for this last time. It's the death of their friend, Lazarus. The death and resurrection of Lazarus is told in John chapter 11, my favorite chapter in the Bible. And in that chapter, it tells us that Jesus, he heard that his friend Lazarus was sick. And so he waits two days before he decides we need to head to Bethany, which was two miles from Jerusalem. And so it's Lazarus' illness and death that, takes, that is the catalyst for their heading back to the area of Jerusalem. And in chapter 11, when Jesus let his disciples know that this is where they're headed, 
This is the disciples' reaction. The Bible says, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? That was their fear. This is their fear. The disciples were afraid of the physical danger that Jesus was going to be in from the religious authorities. And by extension, the danger that they were going to be in as his followers. So prior to this, the last time they were in Jerusalem, the level of hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders had been steadily increasing. And in John chapter 8, the last time they were in Jerusalem, Jesus essentially makes this statement that he's God. Because he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And so at that statement, the Bible says this. So they, the religious authorities, picked up stones to throw at him. And then Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So you can see the followers of Jesus had a very real concern that what was going to happen to them when they arrived in Jerusalem. Because the religious authorities were already this close to physically harming Jesus. And it's in that fear that the disciples headed to Jerusalem. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us whether the human side of Jesus also experienced this fear. Instead, what the Bible tells us is that Jesus just plainly told his followers what was going to happen to him. Instead of focusing on any fear, Jesus focused on what God had in intended for him to do. The Bible says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, the title Son of Man is the title that Jesus used most often to describe to him, to identify himself. And it's an allusion to a messianic title used by the prophet Daniel. And so when referring to himself as the son of man, Jesus was identifying himself as the Messiah. And as Messiah, what he says is he's going to go to Jerusalem and then he, the son of man, was going to be delivered over, meaning arrested and delivered over to the religious authorities. And the authorities would condemn him. They would judge him before turning him over to the Gentiles, which in that context meant the Romans. And so the Romans would receive him. They would punish him and torture him. And then they were going to kill him before he rose again. You can see that's a lot of specific detail. In fact, this is more detail than Jesus had ever given to his disciples at that point. So this chart shows the, a difference in the level of detail between the first time he predicted his death in Mark chapter 8 to this time in Mark chapter 10. So as Jesus neared his death, Jesus was providing more and more information to the disciples on exactly what was going to happen to him. Later, when we study uh, the crucifixion at the end of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see that everything that Jesus predicted came true. Now, I don't want us to focus on the details of this prediction. I want us to focus instead on the difference between how the disciples approached death and how Jesus approached death. In contrast to the disciples' fear, Jesus demonstrated this level of peace in how straightforward he was in describing the details of what was going to happen to him. And it leads us to our first point about kingdom-minded thinking. That kingdom-minded thinking has a different perspective on death. A different perspective on death. Followers of Jesus think differently about death. Now, death and dying, that's, that's not something we like thinking about, not like talking about. 
According to various studies, the majority of the population fears death or dying to at least some degree. And in fact, one in five people state that they're afraid or very afraid of death and dying. These statistics were consistent across age groups, meaning young people were just as likely to be afraid of dying as the elderly. And according to recent studies from the World Health Organization, fears about death and dying actually worsened during the pandemic. It makes perfect sense why people are afraid of death. It makes perfect sense if you don't have an assurance of what happens after death, right? If you do not know where you're headed after death, you ought to be terrified, terrified. And if you're here today and that's true of you, will you please, I beg of you, come talk to one of the pastors before you leave today, because we have good news about how you can be assured of your eternal destiny through Jesus Christ. But for followers of Jesus, we can actually have peace when we think about death and dying because you and I have an understanding of eternity. For the Christian, we believe that eternity, we believe that heaven exists and is real. We believe that in eternity, we're going to have eternal life, an eternal home, an eternal purpose, an eternal bodies, an eternal fellowship. We believe that because we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we have access to these things after we die. The Bible says, but according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God has prepared for his people an eternal home. We have eternity. Because of this perspective, Christians can think differently about death. Right? When we have the hope of eternity, we don't fear death. In fact, to some degree, we look forward to it. The Apostle Paul said this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. By that he meant that everything in this life that we live here on this earth, it's focused on Christ, lived for Christ, guided by Christ. And when we die, we'll be with Christ. Right? For the follower of Jesus, whether we live or die, it's a win-win scenario because we have Jesus. Live or die, we have Jesus. And so no wonder we can face mortality, our mortality, and the mortality of our loved ones with hope and peace rather than with fear and anxiety. The Bible says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. This is the perspective we can have with eternity. And I still acknowledge that death can still be scary. Right? Even knowing we have eternity secured, it can still cause anxiety. And I don't want to minimize the anxiety that death and dying may cause. You know, for a decade and a half before in my previous careers, I traveled a lot and I was on a lot of airplanes. And I know what's going to happen to me when I die. I'm going to be with Jesus. And yet every time I board an airplane, there's always this little tinge of fear in the back of my mind. Death is still scary. The world is still uncertain. Pain and suffering in this world are real. Life can be difficult and the end of life can be anxiety causing. And yet, if we want to be kingdom minded, then we need to, as much as possible, move away from focusing on those fears and those anxieties and focusing on Jesus. Are you here today in the circumstances of your life or the circumstances of this world causing you anxiety?
Are you frightened or worried about what's going to happen? Be at peace. Be at peace because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And because of Jesus, we can think about death balanced against eternal life. And that changes everything. Focusing on Jesus helps remove all our fears and anxieties. The Bible says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Kingdom-minded Christians think differently about death. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're headed to Jerusalem. And at some point during this journey, two of the disciples approached him. And it takes us to our second section of text. And the Bible says this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, Yeah, we're able. And Jesus said to him, Well, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared. This is the word of the Lord. So we need to address one big question often asked about this scene. Who asked Jesus about sitting at Jesus' right and left hand? James and John or their mommy? Because here in Mark, it says that the men approached Jesus. But in Matthew 20's retelling of this scene, the Bible says this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, well, what do you want? And she said to him, well, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. How do we make sense of this apparent contradiction? Now, I use the phrase apparent contradiction because I don't see this difference as a contradiction. A contradiction is when two sentences say two totally different things that are mutually exclusive. Right? That, that is, both of these things cannot be true at the same time. Let me give you an example. Look at these two sentences. Russell Wilson is the starting quarterback of the Seahawks, and Russell Wilson is the starting quarterback of the Broncos. Too soon? You see how Russell can't be the starting quarterback of two different teams at the same time, right? Those are contradictory statements. Well, what if I said this? The Russell Wilson trade is terrible for the Seahawks, and the Russell Wilson trade is terrific for the Seahawks. These two sentences are not necessarily contradictory. It is possible for both of these things to be true at the same time. For instance, the trade for the Seahawks might be terrible in the short term. They're going to be terrible in 2022 without a good quarterback. But if the draft picks they receive for Wilson pan out, this trade could be terrific for the Seahawks in the long term. You see that these statements are different, but they're not mutually exclusive, meaning they're not contradictory. In the case of who asked Jesus about sitting at his right and left hand, Matthew 20 actually gives us the detail that James and John and their mom, all three of them approached Jesus at the same time. It's quite possible that all three of them as a group asked Jesus for this favor. 
Mark fixated on James and John because as we learn later in this passage, the disciples were furious at James and John for this ask. But Matthew focuses on a different aspect. Why would he do that? But one commentary I noted, I read, noted that there's evidence that James and John are actually cousins of Jesus, that their mom was Jesus's aunt. And if that's true, culturally back then, there would have been added pressure to say yes to a favor if an older relative made that ask of you. And so you can imagine the scene, James and John and their mom, they come to Jesus. James and John ask for this favor. And then their mom doubly asks Jesus for this favor to add that extra pressure. And Matthew, who was a Jewish person writing for a Jewish audience, focuses on this detail about the mom because culturally it would have stood out to him. And that's why he focuses on that. In any case, it's clear that both Matthew and Mark's accounts can coexist without taking away from the trustworthiness and accuracy of Scripture. It's a good reminder that when we come to a passage in the Bible that we have a hard time understanding or reconciling, our first instinct should not be to question the validity or accuracy of Scripture. Our first instinct ought to be to seek guidance on how to understand it. And so James and John, they had this audacity to come with their mom to ask Jesus to just to say yes to whatever we're about to ask you. I mean, how many parents ever had one of your children do the same thing, right? Daddy, I need you to say yes. I'm going to ask you this question. And Jesus is not offended and doesn't rebuke them for this very selfish request. Instead, he wanted to know, well, what do you want from me? And the Bible says this is what they asked him. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now back then, kings would have a position on their staff who sat in a chair to the right-hand side of the king's throne. Our modern term, right-hand man, derives from this practice. And that position was considered a position of equal authority and equal power and equal respect as the king himself. In Genesis... When Pharaoh made Joseph his right-hand person, he actually took off his signet ring and put it on Joseph's finger to signify that Joseph had the exact same power and authority that Pharaoh had. And so essentially, James and John wanted to be Jesus' top two men when he became king. That's what they thought when he said, come into your glory. Now, there's an interesting detail in Matthew chapter 19 that explains why James and John were thinking about this. So last week, we studied the rich young ruler. At the end of that scene, Peter says to Jesus, you know, they, we've given up everything to follow you. What are we going to get out of it? And Jesus responded by affirming to Peter that, it, that everything that, that his disciples gave up to follow Jesus was going to be returned to them in this world and the world to come. And then Matthew's account of this includes this extra sentence. This is what the Bible says. Then Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, and then so on. And after that sentence, the accounts of Matthew and Mark are the same. And so Peter wondered aloud what they were going to get for following Jesus. 
And Jesus promised them when he came and sat on his throne, they would also receive positions of power in his new kingdom. This is the response that prompted the idea in James and John's mind that they were going to sit on thrones near Jesus. And they just wanted to sit on his right and left when that happened. Right? They, James and John asked Jesus for this favor, and Jesus said this. And Jesus said to them, well, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? Jesus' response to James and John leads to our second point about kingdom-minded thinking, and it's this. Kingdom-minded thinking has a different understanding of glory. It's going to have a different understanding of glory. Followers of Jesus, we think differently about glory. The Greek word for glory is the word doxa, which means magnificence or excellence that demands praise, honor, and respect. When someone or something receives glory, it's receiving the praise, honor, and respect that their excellence deserves. And Christians think differently about glory. James and John wanted to sit on Jesus' left and right hand when he came into glory. In their mind, glory for Jesus meant he became king. And in their mind, their glory meant they had positions of power and wealth and authority. Their perspective on glory is the same as the world's perspective on glory. Glory means having power and authority and wealth. Right? That's what deserves praise and honor and respect in the world, power and wealth. But this question about glory brought something else to Jesus' mind. They asked about glory, and Jesus talked and thought about a cup and a baptism. What did he mean by that? Well, throughout the Old Testament, we see the metaphor of a cup representing God's wrath. For example, the prophet Isaiah said, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. It's this cup of God's wrath that Jesus referred to in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the crucifixion. Jesus prayed this, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Remove your cup of wrath. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup represented God's wrath. It represented suffering. The cup represented suffering. In the same way, baptism also referred to suffering. Where baptism used here implies immersion underwater. It means a flood. And throughout the Old Testament, there's water-related imagery that also represents suffering. David used this imagery in Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire when there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. And so taken together, the cup and the baptism represent suffering. They ask about positions of glory when he comes into glory, and essentially Jesus' response was, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to suffer like I am about to suffer? The contrast between how James and John thought about glory and how Jesus thought about glory is important. In the minds of James and John, glory meant personal glory, just like the world thinks about glory. But in Jesus' mind, glory meant suffering. 
Glory meant drinking God's cup of wrath. Glory meant being overwhelmed with the floodwaters of torture and pain. For Jesus, glory meant the cross. Because to Jesus, glory doesn't have to be glamorous. There is glory even in suffering. There is glory even in hard things. In God's kingdom, power and wealth don't deserve praise, honor, and respect. That's not how God thinks about glory. No, what earns us honor and respect in the kingdom is obedience. Real glory is when we follow God's call in our lives no matter where he leads us, even if that leads us to hard things. Real glory is being willing to suffer for God. Real glory is not about the self. Real glory is about self-sacrifice. Real glory is about obedience. Well, what might that look like in practice? See, we have to shift our expectations here because we think really big things bring us glory. But if obedience is what earns us, earns us honor and respect in God's kingdom, then glory can be found in the ordinary, faithful living out of our faith. Glory can be found in the ordinary, faithful living out of our faith. Glory can be found in having coffee with a widow in her home as she tells you about her life. Glory can be found in serving those in need through our food bank. Glory can be found in working through those hard issues in your marriage because you're committed to staying married. Glory can be found in getting spit up on when you're holding a child serving in the nursery. Glory can be found in listening to children recite Bible verses in Awana. Glory can be found in how you parent your children in those days that are driving you absolutely crazy. Glory can be found in getting out of bed on those days. That's the hardest possible thing for you to do. Glory can be found in doing whatever we are called to do and being obedient to that call. Even if, there's, even if it's hard. Even if there's suffering involved. Even if it seems mundane. How is God calling you to faithfully live out your faith right now? In what ordinary way can you be obedient to God? Because it's not ordinary. It will earn you honor and respect in the kingdom. And by saying that it earns us honor and respect, by the way, I don't mean from other people. I mean from God. Because obedience is how we earn and hear that phrase, well done, good and faithful servant at the end of our days. Honor and respect. Now, while I just gave examples about the glory that we receive by faithfully living out faith, ultimately, as followers of Jesus, we seek God's glory and not our own. We seek God's glory and not our own. You see, there were two things problematic with the request made by James and John. One is that they shared the world's definition of glory. But two, they were so focused on their own glory rather than on God's glory. I mean, Jesus had just given them specific details about how he was going to be tortured and killed. And yet their primary question was, yeah, okay, but when you become king, can we be put in positions of awesomeness? As citizens of the kingdom, our focus should always be on the king. Because honestly, if what we do on earth in obediently living out our faith earns us zero acknowledgement, 
but it points other people to Christ, that's a win. If you and I get no credit, but God gets all the credit that we did something right. Our goal is always, always to bring God all the glory. Because he alone is worthy and deserving of it. The Bible says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the focus. So back to our text. James and John, they ask Jesus about glory. Jesus points them to suffering. And James and John replied, yeah, we're able. Now, obviously, it's unclear that they understood what Jesus meant when they confidently responded. And Jesus tells them this, though. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those whom it's been prepared. In this response, Jesus affirmed that James and John would, in fact, experience the same suffering that he did. We know from historical records that's the truth. That almost all of the disciples would eventually be martyred for their faith in Christ. Even John, who died of old age and the only one who wasn't martyred, suffered persecution during his lifetime, suffered. Now he says, but as far as sitting at the right of my left hand, that I can't grant. It's already spoken for. What do you mean by that? Well, most commentators believe that this is a reference to the two thieves with whom Jesus was crucified. He's saying, I'm going to suffer. You're going to suffer with me, but you're not going to suffer by right and left hand. The Bible says, and with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. James and John wanted glory. Jesus said, glory involves suffering. You're going to suffer, but my right and right left hand, that's already spoken for. It was ordained for these two thieves. Now, what was the fallout from that selfish request made by James and John? It takes us to our last section of text for today. The Bible says this. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Other disciples are indignant. They're furious at James and John. Now, we sometimes forget how human the disciples were. As you know, I'm a big fan of the show The Chosen, the fictionalized account of the life and ministry of Jesus and his disciples. And one of my favorite aspects of the show is they, 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 they give a raw, a raw humanity in the depictions of the disciples. And these are disciples who fight with each other. Disciples who bear grudges. Disciples who don't understand what Jesus is saying or doing. And here we see that same thing at play, that these very human disciples, James and John, cause real human issues with the other disciples because of their selfish request. And Jesus' response to their selfishness is our third lesson on kingdom-minded thinking. That kingdom-minded thinking has a different definition of greatness. A different definition of greatness. The followers of Jesus think differently about greatness. Right? The other disciples, they're furious. And so Jesus played peacemaker by gathering the twelve to him, and he reminds them what he already taught them about greatness. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
but it shall not be so among you. James and John wanted positions of authority over the other disciples, and Jesus said, that's what the Gentiles want. This is an especially cutting remark to the disciples because of its comparison to Gentiles. Now remember, culturally at that time, Jews and Gentiles, they disliked each other. They held prejudiced views about each other. Jews considered Gentiles to be pagans who didn't follow God and his law. And so when Jesus brought up Gentiles, he was making this clear statement. That's what the pagans do. And you're not to do the same. You're to behave differently. You're to think differently. And that's especially true as it comes to the area of greatness. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time unpacking this point since I taught a whole sermon on this four weeks ago. But as a quick review of that sermon, one, the world teaches us that greatness is about being above other people. But in the kingdom, the kingdom's framework for greatness is whether we place others above ourselves. As Christians, we're to think of others first and put their needs and desires and wants over our own. Two, the greatest in God's kingdom is the one who willingly chooses to serve all others before themselves. Willingly chooses to serve. In God's kingdom, being great is not about serving ourselves. It's about serving others. Someone with a kingdom mindset will, by definition, also have a servant heart. And three, we resemble Jesus when we do serve others. We resemble Jesus when we serve others. Whenever we elevate other people above ourselves, we look like Jesus. In, in, uh, at the, right before the crucifixion, Jesus demonstrated his servant heart by washing the feet of his disciples. And it makes a point to us, again, that greatness in God's kingdom is being willing to do lowly things in service of others. That's how you achieve greatness. How can God achieve greatness in you today? How can you serve? Where is he calling you to serve? Where is he calling you to engage in kingdom work? If you've been sitting on the sidelines, my encouragement for you is to seek God in prayer and he might lead you to people or ministries in which you can serve. Again, for a more complete picture of this, you can check out our message from February 20th entitled, Anyone Would Be First, and hear the full sermon on that. You can find it on our website or in our app. But kingdom-minded Christians think differently about greatness. One last thing I want to highlight in this passage. Jesus reminded his disciples to think differently about greatness, that it's about serving others, and then Jesus further explained what serving others involves. Our last lesson on kingdom-minded thinking is this. Kingdom-minded thinking has a different heart to serve. A different heart to serve. Followers of Jesus think differently about how and why we serve. Jesus said this, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, I want to acknowledge that there's a tension in trying to understand this verse because of the weight of the word slave. It's impossible to see or hear or think about the word slave without bringing into that word all of the horrors and atrocities of 18th and 19th century slavery in the U.S. and around the world. And that's not even speaking about the current atrocities and horrors of human trafficking today. And so I acknowledge that it's a hard thing for us to wrestle and identify with this word. The Bible calls us to do so. And here in Mark 10, the Bible tells us if we want to be great, we have to be a servant. And if we want to be first the greatest, then we have to be a slave. 
The word servant is the word diakonos. It refers to someone who is hired to serve someone or who willingly chooses to serve someone. The word doulos is the word slave. Someone who is bound more deeply to another person, either because of a debt or because they pledge themselves to that person. Now, sometimes this word in some translations is translated bond servant instead of slave, but they mean the same thing. Now, we see these two words, and we think that they're pretty different words, but they're actually closer to meaning than we, when we see them. Professor John Oakes put it this way. In English, the difference in meaning between servant and slave is cavernous. It's huge. In Greek society, the difference between servant and slave was smaller. And so in the historical context, both words represents someone who is serving another person. But doulos represents someone who's bound more deeply in service to another person. Here's why this is important. I think Christians think of serving others as an option. Serving others is something we can just choose to do when we want to do it, when we have time to do it. Most Christians view themselves as a diakonos identity, right? Someone who can just choose when he or she wants to. But true kingdom-minded thinking understands that the follower of Jesus is more deeply bound to serving. Serving is not an option. Serving is part of our identity as believers, you and I are more deeply bound to serving. We have a doulos identity, not a diakonos identity. And who are we bound to? To God. The Bible says this, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The Bible tells us we used to have another master. It was our sin and our sin nature. But once we placed our faith in Christ, we're freed from the penalty of sin eternally, and we're freed from the power of sin in the present. And it's out of our gratitude for that freedom from sin that we bind ourselves freely and obediently to God. You see, too often when we're serving, we think the person we're serving or the ministry we're serving is the object of our service. The reality is that when we serve others, we're not serving the person. We're not serving the ministry. We're not serving the church. We're serving God. We're being obedient to his call in our life to serve. And if all of us collectively and individually as followers of Jesus live out this kingdom-minded call to serve, man, we would transform our communities. If every follower of Jesus understood that we have a doulos identity as believers... What an impact and witness that would be to the world. I've been so moved by all of the ways that the world has been responding to the war in Ukraine. And it's not just organizations like Samaritan's Purse that have stepped in. I'm moved by the ways that individuals have been moved to serve Ukrainian refugees. I saw a video of Ukrainian children who were in, going to Italian elementary schools as refugees, and the other students cheered. Celebrity chef Jose Andres and his organization set up a mobile kitchen along the Ukrainian-Romanian border to feed refugees as they fled their country. A wave of people began booking Airbnbs in Ukraine, 
With no intention of using the location, it was just an easy and convenient way for them to give Ukrainians money directly. I saw this picture of baby strollers and diaper bags being left at a train station in Poland by Polish mothers so that freeing refugee parents could use them. In crises, when human beings see other human beings suffering, we step up to serve. And how much more ought followers of Christ step up to serve because the God that they worship left the riches of heaven to serve us? And how much more ought Christians serve others because we're commanded to serve? That is our identity. That we have a doulos identity as followers of Christ. And the last verse in this passage reminds us that the Son of Man, Christ, the King of the Kingdom, came not to be served but to serve. And therefore, you and I, as kingdom-minded Christians, we need to think differently about serving. And that would be transformative on the world. Apple's iconic ad noted this, because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. The reality is we don't need to be crazy. We just need to be committed to kingdom thinking, committed to thinking differently from the world. And when we do that, we can change the world. Pastor Alastair Begg put it this way. It's going to be when the Christian church is prepared to live with an inverted set of world values that we will make an impact on the culture. That's what will make an impact. That's what will transform lives. The Bible says we're called to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among, you, among whom you shine as lights of the world. Beloved, let us shine. May we live out upside-down kingdom values for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this great truth. We thank you that we are called to have a different, to think differently about death, to think differently about glory, to think differently about greatness, to think differently about serving. And we do that because you think differently about it. And we're called to think like you. Father, we pray for the faith to live our lives differently, to live upside down from the world. Lord, even now, direct our hearts and steps in how you would have us live out these kingdom values. We might bring you great glory in all that we say and do. For your glory alone, in Jesus' name. Amen.